morning and welcome to Palm Vista Community Church. And if you are a guest, uh, let me give you what I call the tip of the day. Here's the tip of the day. Uh, You need a Bible. Because what we're going to do right now is we're going to study God's Word. That's the central piece, really, of of our meeting together. It's God's Word. At at Palm Vista, we believe that God has actually spoken to us, and He's spoken to us through this Word. So if you don't have a Bible, we've got a couple of ushers here. Uh, Raise your hand, and if you don't own a Bible, we'd be happy to give you that Bible as a gift. But you're going to need a Bible. So everyone, would you please turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And the title of this message is, An Anchor for Our Souls. And if you're seated next to someone who's wrestling through their Bible to find the book of Hebrews, just politely say, hey, let me help you to get that. It's at the back of your Bibles. It's one of the last books of the Bible in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 6. This, this sermon is entitled, An Anchor for, your, for Our Souls. And that is our desire this morning, that, that God himself would speak to you through his word, and that his word would become an anchor for your souls. Very important in the troubling storms of life. We need an anchor. We need stability. We need a reference point. And friends, this is the ultimate reference point, because this is God's word. So let us read together in Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to begin in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to, to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give me the ability to preach your word to your people. Lord, I pray that there would be a connection between what you want to say to them, each one of them, Lord, and the words that come out of my mouth. And would you give them hearing ears? And would you open up hearts? And would you, would you grip souls with your hope this morning? As only you can do it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, this Easter morning, we join with millions of people all over the world celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe we are joining together for the most important weekend in the history of mankind. On Friday of this weekend, we celebrated the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross where he took the punishment for our rebellion. It's what the Bible calls sin. And then today, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That is what we are celebrating. It is the resurrection. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that forms the core, that lies at the core of God's hope. At the very core of God's hope. I mean, what else? What else best describes hope than resurrection from the dead? I mean, I mean, one day, you're sitting around with your friends, and imagine yourself 2,000 years ago, and your leader has died. You have watched him die in an excruciating pain on a cross. And all your hopes are dead. And all your dreams are dead. And everything you live for is dead. And then suddenly, three days later, someone comes running in and says, wait a second, he's not dead. He's alive. And with that announcement, with the resurrection of Jesus, your dreams are alive again. You are alive again. Friends, this is the ultimate definition of hope. This is the definition of God's hope. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It reveals the hope of God so that you might experience the hope of God this morning. Jesus is alive. Hope lives. Now here's the question. Does hope live? Does this hope live in your hearts? Does, does God's hope, as I just defined it, grip your hearts? That's the idea in this text here. And if God's hope does grip your hearts, are you holding on to that hope? You see, God's message to all of us this morning is this. Hold on. Hold on to God's hope. Hold on to God's hope. That's the message That's the message. Now, let me just be clear about a a few things here. Before you can hold on to God's hope, God's hope has to hold on to you. Before you can grip God's hope, God's hope has to grip your hearts. And that's my prayer for many of you this morning. Oh, dear friends, thank you so much for coming this morning. Thank you for visiting, as Corey said, a place that is brand new to you for some, People you do not know, you don't know me. I happen to be, have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. But oh, our prayer for you has been for weeks. Because we knew there would be guests this morning. Easter is typically a time when people come to church. And we're grateful for that. But here's our prayer. That if God's hope has not gripped your heart, that today it would. As the message of Christ is preached. And God gives you the ability by his grace, by his mercy, his undeserved mercy and grace, that it would grip you, perhaps for the first time. Because hope is an important thing. I understand that. Um, Hope can be fleeting in this world. 
Can it not? It can be as fleeting as that dream job that you had that was just cut due to downsizing from a weak economy. Hope can be as fragile as living for the acceptance of others. And as I just read this week about these two teenage girls in Minnesota who tragically committed suicide together because they were being rejected by their friends at school because of their looks. Hope can be incredibly fickle, can it not? Particularly when your hope is in a romantic relationship. I mean, a romantic relationship can just appear like a thick morning mist, cool and mysterious, but, but the heat of the day and the problems of life can burn it off so quickly, leaving one reeling in the crushing disappointment of yet another failed relationship. Oftentimes, this world offers us simply shattered dreams, hopes that have been broken, and they result in us, at times, they can cause in us a depressed, angry, hopeless heart. Today, God is speaking to you. He's speaking to all of us. That there's a hope in Christ that can grip your hearts and give you a hope that the world cannot take away. Though you experience legitimate disappointments and sorrows, this hope will carry you. And this is the hope that God's calling us to hold fast to. So may, may we hold on. Hold on to God's hope. But may we be aware of this. First, God's hope must hold on to us. And I believe God will do that this morning. And then there's a, a, another, another group of you that you know, God's hope has gripped your heart. Many of you I know, you're part of this church. Thank you for coming this morning. But you know, for, some, for you, maybe you've drifted a little bit from God's hope. Maybe your grip on God's hope has gotten a little bit loose in your heart. And you kind of feel yourself just dangling in the winds of sort of a hopeless world. Maybe kind of putting your hope here and that kind of disappoints you and putting your hope there. It's funny, I was walking and, and praying with my wife Desiree on Saturday morning and we were just talking about the sermon and I was sharing it with her. And she said, you know, it's funny, Al, I kind of felt like I had this picture about that. I said, well, what is it? He says, well, you know, God loves us and he grips us with his love and his hope. But sometimes we kind of wiggle out of his grip. And yet God's grip will never let you go. If you're truly his. And she says the picture I kind of had is, is of, of this benevolent loving God kind of holding people but by their ankles. Anybody feel like that right now? And they're kind of flailing their arms. And they're kind of trying to grab at different things. And, and, and I believe God's word to you this morning, friend. Hold on to God's hope. Hold on to the very hope that's holding on to you and will never let go. So that suddenly, instead of being disoriented, upside down with flailing arms, you kind of come up and you, you, you take these flailing arms and you hold on to God. And you realize that the only true hope in life is gripping your heart. You see, friends, that is God's burden in this text. That's the privilege I have of sharing that burden with you. Hold on hold on to God's hope. And so to do this, to understand God's hope, I believe we kind of need to explore three questions about God's hope. 
These three questions will form the backdrop to the three main points of the message. And and these three questions are, are the following. What is the basis of God's hope? What is the assurance of God's hope? And what is the effect of God's hope on our souls? Now, these three questions will be answered in the three points, so you have time to write that down. But let's look at this first question. What is the basis of God's hope? Friends, God's hope, God's hope is based on God's promise. Now, I want you to look at your text. In fact, you know, just take your finger and put, put your finger right on the text. Involve your entire body. Your finger, your eyes, your ears, your brain. Let's, let's get involved. Let's engage God's word. But look at verse 11, please. Hebrews 6, 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. So we see here, the purpose of this text is that the author, God ultimately, but the human author inspired by God is saying, look, here's our purpose, that you would have the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. So this text is about having the full assurance of hope. Now, how do we do that? Look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's what I believe this text is saying right here. That faith to inherit God's promises is what it means to hold on to God's hope. Faith to inherit God's promises, verse 12, is what it means to hold on to or here have the full assurance of hope. So if I'm going to obey God's word this morning to hold on to God's hope, I have to learn what it is to have faith and and through faith and patience to obtain the promises. In fact, he says in verse 12, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, faith biblically is defined as the assurance of things hoped for. So faith and hope, I want you to see the connection between faith and hope. We're called to hold on to God's hope, but to do that, we must exercise faith in the promises of God so that we would obtain those promises through faith and patience. Because faith is the assurance of what we hope for. You can almost look at it this way. Faith is hope in action. Now let me try to illustrate this to you. Jose Prado and I are holding on to the hope of losing weight. If you're new to the church, Jose Prado and I both desperately need to lose weight. Now that hope is based on the promise that if we control what we eat and we exercise regularly, over time, we will lose weight. So, we're going to go over to Weight Watchers and imitate those who through faith, watching what they eat and exercising, and patience, doing this over time, have obtained the promise of weight loss. Now, far more serious, far more eternal, and in a far more important way, God is calling us to hold on to his hope, in verse 12 here, by imitating those who have obtained the promise, which underlies God's hope, by faith and patience. And then... Look at verse 13. He gives us the very example that we're to imitate, and that is Abraham. So look at the text again, verse 13. And when God made a promise to Abraham. So we see now, we're supposed to, in, we're supposed to imitate those who, faith, who through faith and patience obtain the promise. And now in verse 13, he gives us the one we're supposed to imitate. He takes us to the place where we now put into action this command to hold on to God's faith. We're to imitate Abraham. 
Because as it says in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, now here's the promise to Abraham. Look at this promise in verse 14. This is the promise to Abraham. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And look at 15. And thus Abraham, what did he do? Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So if we're to imitate Abraham, guys, and it's important that we imitate Abraham so that we can hold on to God's hope, we have to first understand who Abraham is. We have to, we have to know his story. We have to understand the promise that is quoted in verse 14 so that we can then understand how Abraham uh, exercised faith and patience to obtain that promise. In fact, this promise comes at a very key point in Abraham's life. It comes in Genesis 22. We're going to go there in a moment. Genesis, first book of the Bible, verse 22. But here's the problem. The Hebrew Christians to whom this was written immediately understood this quote. It would be kind of like this. If I were to quote to you a line from your favorite movie, you would immediately understand what's behind that line, wouldn't it? If I were to say to you, Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Your laughter betrays you. You understand that. Unless you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz, and then you go, what are you talking about? Or if I were to say to you, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. You immediately, by your laughter, understand the context because you know the movie, right? Some of you know it better than others. Or for those of you who are really into the classics, if I were to say, here's looking at you, kid, you would understand exactly Casablanca. All right, here's the problem. If you've never seen those movies, you didn't laugh just now because you had no idea what those quotes mean. Here's the problem. Most of you haven't seen the movie of Abraham's life in Genesis 22, and so when, God, when, when the author here says, here's the promise that Abraham inherited, and he quotes, I will surely bless you and multiply, you go, yeah, and so what? Who's Toto? What's Kansas? Now, now you laugh, but it's not funny. Because of our biblical ignorance, God's purpose that we would hold on to his hope, we got to do a little work, don't we, guys? we got to go back And look at the clip of Abraham's life from which this promise came so we can understand how in the world did Abraham hold on to that promise by faith. So, are you ready? Let's go back to the clip. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. Please, exercise this wonderful privilege we have of having God's word. Turn to Genesis 22. We've got to understand this promise, guys. So that we can understand how Abraham fulfilled and obtained the promise through faith and patience. Because this scripture tells us to imitate Abraham so that we can hold on to God's hope. So let's look at the promise. And as you're turning back to Genesis 22, let me give you a quick update on Abraham's life. I'm going to give you a quick bio on Abraham. Abraham is one of the key figures of the Old Testament. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. So Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. He lived in a place that is now modern Iraq. And God, when Abraham was 75 years old, God spoke to him. God spoke to him. And God gave him a promise. Now, mind you, at 75, he and his wife Sarah had had no children which in the, in the Middle East back then, that was seen as a curse. A 75-year-old man with no children. Loser is what the world would have looked at Abraham as. 
But God chose him. And God gave him a promise. And God said to Abraham this, I am going to make you a great nation. The Hebrew nation. Abraham was the first Hebrew. He's the father of all the Jews. I am going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land. He said, get up from modern-day Iraq. I want you to move to modern-day Israel, because that's the promised land. And then he gave him one more promise. He says, through you, all the offspring of the... You will have many offspring, and through you, through your offspring, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, that's a pretty big deal for a a loser boy, 75-year-old, with no children. And the chances of them having children are very small, okay? I mean, this is the biological realities of life. But God chose them. Are you getting the picture? Okay. So as we move now into Abraham's life, Abraham waits. You need to know this. He waits 25 years. Dude is 100 years old. And he's standing up in front of Palm Vista going, I got an announcement this morning. Someone's pregnant. Oh, really? Who is it? Sarah. (laughs) Sarah. She's almost 100. I know. God fulfilled his promise. Yay! Sarah may have been saying, oh no. Midnight feedings. I'm too old. This, this child's name was Isaac. And he was the child of promise. And this would be the son through whom God would give a multitude of offspring. There would be many children born through Isaac. And Isaac would be the son of promise. And somehow through Isaac's descendants, because Isaac is Abraham's descendant, God would bless the nations. And now we go to scene four. I've just given you scenes one, two, and three, beginning in Genesis 12. Now we go to scene four. Now we go to the climactic scene of Abraham's narrative. Now we go to the climactic scene of the movie, and God says to Abraham, Isaac now is a teenager. We don't know how old he was exactly. Let's say he's 15 or 16. I have a 17-year-old son who's playing the drums. Make him 17. He's probably bigger than, than Abraham. And Abraham's now like 117 years old, so he could definitely take his dad, okay? And God commands Abraham to do something very unusual. And that command is what we're going to read in Genesis 22. So let's read it together. I'll read it out loud. You read it silently. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, let me stop right there. If you're a believer, if you've heard only begotten son, whom I love, and if you have studied the Bible at all, immediately this points to whom? Jesus Christ, whom the heavenly father sent. But right now we're talking about Isaac, whom the earthly father Abraham is being commanded to send and do what with him? Well, it's amazing. It's shocking. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I can't, I don't have time to explain to you why this is an ethical command and why this does not violate any of God's moral law. It is perplexing. A burnt offering, folks, means there's nothing left after you've offered it. Okay? Pretty serious stuff. But it's true. And it's a test of Abraham's faith. And so what does Abraham do? So Abraham, verse 3, rose early in the morning. 
He didn't wait. He rose early in the morning. He saddled the donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went on to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What jumps out at you? Wait a second, Abraham. You're going to come back, you and the boy? Did you not get the memo, Abraham? God said, kill him and burn him. Abraham here exhibits faith. Pay attention. If you're going to imitate Abraham's faith, listen to this. Abraham had resurrection faith. He says to his guys, I'm coming back with the boy. He didn't know how. He knew he was going to obey God, but he knew God would give him his son back from the dead. Because God gave him a son when he was as good as dead as a hundred-year-old man. That's resurrection faith. We're learning what it means to imitate Abraham and his faith. So verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He's old enough that he can carry the wood that's going to burn him to death. And took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went both of them together. Now it's Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb? For the burnt offering. Oh, friends, those of you who are believers, this points directly to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Where's the Lamb? Where's the Lamb, Daddy? Abraham said, look at this faith. God will provide for himself the Lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went up, both of them together. Verse 9, when they came to the place which God had told him, by the way, many scholars say that that place, Mount Moriah, is none other than Jerusalem. That this is the temple mount where Solomon would build the temple. Imagine that. Has the symbolism grabbed your heart? Has it gripped your heart? Has God's amazing grace gripped you yet? What a picture. What a picture. And when they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the altar and catch the scene. Please, you're leaning forward on your seats. You're watching the movie. You're going, can it be? Is he going to kill his only son, the heir of the promise? And he lays him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife, and it was a very sharp knife, and to slaughter his son. And he raises it over his head. And people are screaming, no! But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham! Abraham, I, just can, I can only imagine, he's trembling. Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Oh, friends, the faith that obtained God's promises, the way we hold on to God's hope is that we give everything to him and trust him fully. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And let me just say to you right now, and introduce to you a concept that may be new to you. We can talk later about it. I want to talk to you later about this. If you're a guest, I want you to email me later about this, because I know this is not easy to understand, but it's true and it's good. Here in the Christian theology, the, 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 the idea of an atoning sacrifice. Atonement is to pay for something that you owe, to atone for, to cover, to pay for sins, to pay for your rebellion. This idea of a substitutionary, substitute, atoning sacrifice emerges in Scripture. And who does that point to? Jesus. Does it not? You see, 
Isaac was saved because Jesus was sacrificed. So Abraham called the name of that place, verse 14, the Lord will provide. As it is said on this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now we get to Hebrews 6. I know that's a long clip, but it's a good clip. Hebrews 6 is now where we're going to get it. This is the Hebrews 6 zone in Genesis 22. Here we go, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, think Hebrews 6.13, God who couldn't swear by anybody else swore by himself. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now, Genesis 22.17 is quoted directly in Hebrews 6.14. Here's the promise. Do you get it yet? Got a lot behind it, doesn't it? Here we go, he, Genesis twenty two seventeen. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the she- seashore. So God promises to bless him and give him many offspring, plural. But now, watch how it turns. Watch how it turns. And your offspring, singular, I believe this is speaking of Jesus, shall possess the gate of his enemies. I believe this is now saying, yes, you're going to have many children. Yes, Isaac will have uh, uh, Jacob, and Jacob will be called Israel, and Israel will have 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes will produce a multitude of people who are with us today, the Jews, but there will be one offspring produced out of those 12 tribes. Jesus, he will possess the gates of your enemies. And look at this, and in your offspring, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because... You obeyed my voice. Now, back to Hebrews 6. Let's go back. Look at that promise again. Listen. Imitate those who, th- faith and who, those who through faith and patience obtain the promise. Because that's the way you hold on to God's hope. And I want you to imitate Abraham. Because Abraham believed God on Mount Moriah. And therefore, the promise, Hebrews 6.14, I will surely bless you and I will multiply you, has been fulfilled. Oh, friends, some of you are hearing this for the very first time. It's a little distracting. Maybe it's a little bit new. Maybe I speak too fast. I apologize for that. But I trust God to teach you what the Hebrew Christians would have already known. And this is it. God fulfilled his promise to bless Abraham and multiply Abraham. He said that I'm going to give you lots of offspring, lots of children, and he did. But one of his offspring, Jesus, would become a blessing to Abraham, to all the nations. You see, Isaac, Isaac is, this whole picture is of Christ. Friends, what's the basis of God's hope? It's God's promise. And who is God's promise? It's Jesus. I'm laying it out before you. God's laying it out before you. Perhaps for the first time. Oh, may it grip your hearts. He's the basis for your hope. Let me encourage you to believe God's hope because it is a sure hope. It's assured by God's very character, which leads us into the second point. We come now to the second point of God's hope. It's based on God's promise, who is Jesus. And it, God's hope, is assured by God's character. It's sure. It's true. Listen, God does not lie. It's impossible for God to lie. He's perfect. He's holy. 
He's without sin. When God says something, you can believe it because God is truth. When Jesus came, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When God promises something, you can bank on it because God always fulfills his promises. The Bible says that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, will he not do it? Has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? Listen, friends, God doesn't lie. So, Al, if God doesn't lie, why did God take an oath in Hebrews 6.13? Look at Hebrews 6.13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And it's just quoting directly from Genesis 22, the narrative in verse 15. And 16, if God doesn't lie, why does God have to take an oath? You see, I understand humans having to take an oath. I do, right? We sign contracts, we take oaths. Why? Because basically humans are liars and cheaters. And if we didn't do that, we wouldn't protect one another. But God isn't a liar. So why did God take an oath here? Look at this. Look, we've we got to try to figure this out. And here's how you figure it out. God did this because he's merciful and kind. He didn't have to do it. He did it because he's merciful and kind. And to understand that, let's drop into the first century oath-taking, shall we? Verse 16 of Hebrews 6. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So what do we learn from here? Well, in the first century, people would often swear when they're doing business, hey, what I'm telling you is true. What I promise to pay you back, I will pay back. And I swear by something greater than me. Some people swore by Caesar or by the king. Jews would swear by God's name. It was very important for a Jew because if he broke his word, he'd be breaking the third commandment. To taking, that's what it means to take God's name in vain, actually. And he would be taking God's name in vain. So he swore by something greater than himself. We do the same thing today. And by the way, when they would swear, take an oath, that, hey, I'm telling the truth, hey, I'll pay you back, you know, next week. They, they were saying this, if I don't do it, may the gods punish me. Of course, the Hebrews would say, if I don't do it, may God Almighty punish me. We do the same things today, don't we? About three weeks ago, I was at a hearing, an immigration hearing for Mr. Prado, and because I'm his sponsor into this country, they had to, they had to ascertain some things about me. I sat in a courtroom, I raised my hand, I promised to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. So help me, God. I swore by someone greater than me that what I was about to say was true, and it better be true. You know what? Have you, have you done, anybody done that recently? It's a little unnerving, you know? Oof, I hope I don't make a misstatement here. <laughs> I hope that, you know, I hope my memory is right. Because you feel the pressure, don't you? All right. See, what's happening here is that God is swearing by himself because there's no one greater for him to swear by. And so, but the question is this. I understand why I have to because I'm a liar. So are you. (laughs) We've all told lies. Come on, don't look at me so seriously. Some of you are pathological. All right, God will deal with you. But we're all, we all tell the little, you know, the little deal, right? Okay. But God's not, friend. So why the oath? Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. Oh, friends, here's God's mercy and grace. So when God desired, oh, that word desired is an intense word in the original language it was written in. 
when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. See, God reveals here the reason he took an oath. It was because he so desired to show us to show us how sure this promise is. Remember, God's promise, God's hope, is assured by God's character. He guaranteed it with an oath. His oath taken on himself. He gives us, in a sense, a double assurance. First assurance, God doesn't lie. God's promise will come true. Second assurance, God takes an oath on himself to do what he said he would do. And look at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things? God's promise or purpose and God's oath. Neither of them will ever change. He's God. He doesn't change. We change. He doesn't change. By two unchangeable things, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now here we come, here we come to the main theme of the message, don't we? It's going to be restated here. We who have fled to, for refuge might have strong encouragement. Not just a little encouragement, strong encouragement to do what? To hold fast to the hope set before us. That's why God took an oath. Because he's humble. Because he's merciful. Because in a sense he condescends to bend down to our level and speak baby talk with us to relate to us. Okay, you take oaths to make sure that what's being said is right. I'll take an oath on myself. But I don't lie. Know that. But so that you would be really sure that my promise is true and that my hope is true and it's worth everything in your life, that Jesus is worth everything, I am going to do this. Oh, friends, our hope is based on the objective truth of Christ. It's secured by God's character and it's guaranteed by God's oath this is true in a world of lies of false hopes this is the one thing that is true you can bank on this Jesus is the foundation and substance of our hope and our hope is doubly sure God has promised it and sworn it everything promised comes to us through Christ we have God's word for it and he wants us to take hold of it to grip it Certainly, it first must grip you, but oh, grip it, take hold of it, for it is an anchor for your souls, which delivers us to the third point. The third point, how or what is the effect of God's hope on our souls? Oh, friends, the effect of, the, of God's hope on our souls is this. It's an anchor for our souls. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. According to verse 19a, God's hope is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Now, anchors were very important symbols in the first century. Remember, these were seafaring people who lived on the Mediterranean. So an anchor, an anchor communicated to them stability and security. When you're on a ship in the Mediterranean, they don't have the kind of equipment we have today, and a storm arises, you throw that anchor down, and it secures you so that you're not thrown and destroyed on the rocks. Therefore, Christians in the first century used anchors as a very popular symbol. In the catacombs of Priscilla in Rome, you see hundreds or dozens of anchors on the wall. The cross was a symbol. The anchor was a symbol. Why? Because as an anchor is security and stability to keep a ship safe on the storms of the Mediterranean, so Jesus is an anchor to keep us safe on the storms of a sin-ravaged world. 
You see, verse 19 obviously is pointing back to the hope. And it's obviously pointing forward that Christ is the hope. Don't you see that? Look at, look at 19 and 20 again. We have this. This what? The hope he just talked about in 18b. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope, now catch this, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Well, how can a hope enter into the inner place of anything? A hope is an idea. Ah, but look at verse 20. Where Jesus has gone. Do you see that? The hope is Jesus. And Jesus is the hope because he enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, guess what? We got to look at another movie clip. You see, because you and me right now, maybe you do know this, maybe you don't. First of all, we're going, what's the inner place? And what's the curtain? What's he talking about? Hebrew Christians of the first century, they're Hebrew Christians, would understand immediately what he's talking about. You know what the inner place is describing here? It's describing some place called the Holy of Holies. It is the place that in the temple, which was still in existence at that time, the beautiful temple, today you just have the Wailing Wall, it's been destroyed since 70 AD. But in the temple of that day, it's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the curtain separated everybody from that presence of God. It's where God's holy presence lived. And these people, these people knew they couldn't go in there. Now, I, I, I don't want to be crass here, but I do want to use pop culture to help you because so many of us, myself included, are just biblically ignorant. I'm so sorry for that. Hopefully that'll change. Keep coming to church every Sunday. You will deal with that issue and read your Bible. But I, I'm going I'm to reference a movie, okay? Raiders of the Lost Ark. And again, hopefully you've seen it. If not, no biggie. But there's a scene in the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ark of the Covenant, where they get the Ark of the Covenant, which is foolishness, okay? But, and they open it, and upon looking at God's glory, they're all killed immediately. Though it's a movie in pop culture, actually it's not far off from the truth. Because back then, every Jew knew that if he entered into that holy place, he would die immediately. One man could enter there one time of year. It was the high priest. It was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was on the Day of Atonement. This year, it's October 8th, and it was the high holy season. And he goes in one time a year, and he goes in with blood, the blood of a lamb, the blood of a sacrifice. And he puts the blood on the horns of the altar, and he says, Oh God, forgive us our sins. And it was at this time of the year that every good Jew knew that it was during this this season that his name could be written on the Lamb's book of life, or on the book of life. It didn't say Lamb's. And, and when that season ended, the, your name couldn't be written on the book of life for another year until you came back to the high holy days. So it was a terrible time, a time of wailing, a time of fasting, a time of weeping. It's a time when you tried to make everything right with everybody you'd sinned against. People tried to work their way into it. But no one ever dared go into the holy of holies. But oh, Jesus, look at, oh, friends, look at this. Jesus, in verse 20, Look at this. This hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Look, Jesus has gone in as a forerunner on our behalf. Shocking. Shocking. What is this saying? That Jesus is the one, the great high priest, who will go into that inner place, who did go into that inner place, the heavenly inner place, and with his own blood, not the blood of a lamb, poured it out on the altar. And he's a forerunner. A forerunner means that he comes, goes before us, and there's others that follow him in. So that the curtain is broken. 
It's ripped in two. Do you know that on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the actual physical curtain of the temple was ripped in two? To symbolize our hope. What's our hope? My hope is that though I know I cannot approach God because I am a sinner, I am a liar, I'm a thief, I know what I think, I know what I desire in my heart, and I know what my, what, who I am, but I look to Jesus, my hope, my forerunner, the one who fulfilled all these wonderful symbols and these types in the Bible. Jesus, who's my forerunner, who went in through that place because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven, and Jesus now, by his blood, makes a way for me to go into God's presence. For me to have my conscience cleansed. For me to have my sins forgiven. And I cling to him. Yes, he must first cling to me. He must first choose me. But he, if he has chosen you, and I believe if you're here, he's speaking to you by his spirit. If he's gripping your heart. Oh, friends, this is the hope. This is the hope I've come to lay before you. This is the hope God is laying before you. It's the theme of the rest of the book of, the, of Hebrews. Run into God's presence. Behind your forerunner, Jesus, your great high priest. Next week, I'm going to have the privilege of preaching. What is this idea of Jesus as a high priest, one who represents people to God and God to people? They're going to, we're going to study a guy named Melchizedek. Come back for that. It's fascinating. More importantly, it's true. More importantly, it's your only hope. Oh, friends, will you respond to God's hope, Jesus Christ, this morning? Remember the main point of this passage is that God wants you to hold on to the hope he has set before you. That hope is none other than Jesus Christ. Remember that before you can lay hold of God's hope, Christ, God's hope must lay hold of you. Has he laid hold of you this morning? Has he gripped your heart? I've set before you the hope of God. He is Christ and I pray that his love would grip your heart. And for those of you whose hearts have been gripped by God, but you're dangling in the wind right now, oh, friend, respond to this word. It is by his works. It is by his blood. He covers your guilty conscience. He forgives your sins. Oh, run into that place. Don't dread that place. Run into that place. It's a place. It's a throne of grace now because of our hope. Jesus Christ, God calls you to hold on to him, friend. Hope for change, hope for life, hope for joy, hope for renewed relationship with God is yours this morning. Let's pray.